In this episode, I talked to a true underdog, Jerry Fink, who with under $60,000 and a bunch of credit card debt, did his first real estate flip investment in Santa Ana, California. And since then, along with his partners, has deployed over $22 billion in real estate assets and currently have over 170,000 units under management with Bascom Group. Uh, Jerry's going to walk you through exactly how he did each one of these and the lessons learned along the way and how you can do many of these things too. And all of that starts right now with Jerry Fink. One thing is for certain, just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this. Where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to. How to grow your business. How to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Srivatsa, and welcome to Business School. So Jerry, in the um, in the multifamily world, you are a king. Uh, but uh, the crazy part is, you and Bascom have you know deployed close over twenty billion dollars worth of capital. But it didn't really start that way. And I remember when uh, one of the earliest times I met you, you told me you're like, "Hey, Sharon, this started with sixty thousand dollars in Santa Ana." And sure. it's amazing to me, like that you have built, you know, this empire. Uh, that it all started with that $60,000 investment. I'd love for you to just take us back to that and uh, kick this off. Sure. Yeah, well, it all started, uh, you know, I went to school at the University of Wisconsin, uh, got my undergraduate engineering, and I really wanted to learn business. So I went to school for finance. And while I was in finance, uh, I got frustrated because they kept teaching the efficient market theory that you can't outperform the market. And uh, I was in the gym working out one day and some guy was spotting me on the bench press and he said, Hey, you should take a real estate class. You know, they have a great real estate program in Wisconsin. So I took it. And the very first day, the professor said, here's how you make money in real estate. You buy low and sell high. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's so amazing. I, I found the answer. So I ended up majoring in real estate and finance and uh, got a, a job offer at uh, Pacific Life Insurance Company in Newport Beach. And I wanted to get out of the Midwest and go somewhere warm. So I landed there. For, so for a couple of years, I was working and started off as an analyst, worked my way up. And, um, you know, my roommates and I would always come home uh, from work and we'd go out drinking at night and, and doing that scene. And then we'd come home at midnight, one o'clock, and we watch these infomercials about how to buy homes with no money down. <laughs> and we'd go, hey, man, we should do that, right? Like, you know, we're working away, but we're not really building our net worth, uh, just, you know, working at a, a normal job and, uh, we're kind of wasting our life drinking at night too. So we watched this infomercial and thought, let's go buy a house. And so my roommate and I went out, we spent six months looking for a house to buy back in 1994, which turns out was an amazing time to look for real estate because the markets had crashed. And so we spent six months, uh, got super frustrated couldn't find a great deal because we wanted to buy it super cheap. And I was about ready to give it up. And just when I was ready to give it up, a broker called me saying, hey, I have a house in Santa Ana. 
for $60,000. And I thought, wow, that's <laughs> those numbers work, right? And so I toured it. It had everything wrong with it, structural problems, foundation problems, deferred maintenance, uh, you name it, and kind of a rough area of Santa Ana. But I thought for $60,000, it should work because I can fix it up, sell it for $130,000. And so math worked. And so my um, uh, roommate and I bought it. We spent every single night, every weekend there working on it, made every mistake in the book. You know, we didn't have the internet back then, so I couldn't Google how to fix things. So I had to go to Home Depot, ask the workers, like, what do I buy? What tools do I need? How do I replace a toilet? <laughs> and so we did this in six months and ended up selling the house for $130,000. So kind of got the bug of, yeah, I like real estate. This works. And uh, my roommate by then was so burnt out because he, we'd spent six months every night, every weekend working on this house that he wanted to break, but I ended up buying four more homes that year and did the same thing, buy it cheap, fix it up, flip it. And uh, did that for about a year, it was working out great. And then I met someone who said, hey, Jerry, you should buy apartments because they have cash flow." <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's kind of neat, I'll look into it. And so I bought a little 12 unit in uh, Santa Ana for uh, I think it was $325,000. It was like 28,000 unit. In, in retrospect, a, uh, a total bargain. And, um, and, and um, so I went back and um, we bought that 12 unit. I had no money. So I went to coworkers, friends, family, syndicated the $80,000 of down payment. So I created my first syndication, uh, bought the property, uh, did a major renovation on it and uh, repositioned it. And so, and I still own it today. So we refinanced it a number of times. And so probably every time I bought something, um, I focused on um, doing the same process, which was finding kind of distressed or mismanaged real estate and uh, adding value through capital improvements, renovations, releasing it, uh, charging higher rents. And so I ended up buying a number of buildings like that uh, over the next year or two. And then I met my uh, current partner, uh, David Kim, who we were friends at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, David said, hey, let's put together a business plan and um, you know formalize this and go raise capital and grow it. So uh, we put this business plan together uh, Dave and I put it together. It was back before PowerPoint, so we did it on Excel. <laughs> did this little simple uh, uh, PowerPoint, and then we wrote a list of investors of who we talked to, and um, you know, uh, I think we put down a dozen names. One of the names was another classmate of mine and, and Dave's at the University of Wisconsin called Derek Chen. And uh, you know, deep down, I thought I'm going to do this presentation, but. I'll probably strike out. No one's going to fund this company, but I can look back later in life and say, I tried, right? <laughs> I gave it my best shot. So we put this little plan together. And uh, the very first person we talked to was Derek Chen. And uh, we gave the presentation. He listened to it and said, I'm in, I'm, I'm ready to commit. <laughs> and we looked at each other like, R really? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting that as an answer. I was expecting to say, Hey, this looks interesting. I'll think about it, but I'll probably pass and, you know, we'll stay in touch. So he's uh, became our partner and here we are, you know, 25 years later and 20 billion plus of uh, transactions and 
you know, Dave and Derek and I are all still partners together. So that's how it got started and how it kind of grew into a much bigger thing than I think we all expected. What, what an insane story. So uh, sure. I think I want to, I want to unpack the, a couple of things that you put, put in there. Sure. The, the, uh, a lot of people have, when they're listening to you, they're like, wow, that's, I wish yeah. I could do that. And sure. you literally did, did it with no resources. And, and sure. uh, the one thing that you said, which really caught my attention was, Hey, I, um, you know, I, I, you talked about the syndication where you like, I didn't have the money. I went and actually pitched this to friends and family and raised that. How can you talk? Can you remember? Do you remember that time? Sure. How did you pitch that? Like, was it, was it a, so you, you actually had to figure yeah. out how you get some equity. Then you had to go figure out and actually get the debt on it. Like uh, talk us through that. just exactly. very briefly. Yeah. I think the, the most important thing was, you know, my very first acquisition, um, I had no money, <laughs> I had no lender, and I had no deal, right? So I kind of was 0 for 3. <laughs> so I spent I spent six months looking for a deal. And I always tell people, the first thing is spend a lot of time trying to learn the market, find the right opportunity. And then uh, second, when I found it, I went to a bank and the bank turned me down. Even though I had great credit, a great job, they said, hey, we're red line Santa Ana. We had so many foreclosures there. You know, we're not lending there. And uh, I thought, wow, I have my first deal. You know, I'm excited and the bank turned me down. So I ended up like putting a little pitch together and my friend's older brother loaned us the money <laughs> as a private lender, gave us, you know, the 50, 60 grand. And then it came down to, well, I have a loan now. Uh, where do I find the equity? And so I got five or six credit cards took cash advances on my credit cards. And that was back when the interest rates were like 18, 19, 20%. Yeah. So I did uh, cash advances on my credit cards and I got four or five together, got the money there. So I used credit card financing. I found a private lender and put the deal together using like unconventional means to get it done. <laughs> that's, I mean, it, that's insane because um, a lot of, a lot of people are saying, hey, I want to get into real estate right now. I know that that people talk to probably you and me almost every day saying, hey, I, sure. um, how do I go buy this $400,000, you know, even if it's a fourplex or wherever, how do I sure. go buy this? And yeah. I, I, I'm, I have this job at Pacific Life or I have this job at PIMCO. Yeah. I make $80,000 a year. I really want to do that. But I can't create that, but I think what you just said was, "Hey, you you clawed to figure out who can who can give you this capital." But your math worked. Yeah. Um. And and even yeah. though the interest rates yeah. are high, your math exactly. worked. Exactly. Uh, the 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 second thing exactly. that you said, I think that's the one thing I tell. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think if there's uh, yeah, if there's one thing I tell people too is, you know, they always come and go, "How do I do this?" Right. I say start with a condo or a duplex or a triplex, right? Start small. Don't think about trying to buy a 200 unit building, you know, buy a little duplex, uh, buy it somewhere in your back, you know, backyard, maybe within an hour of where you live, learn that market, spend a lot of time underwriting the market, understanding where transactions occur. So you're the expert that market. And then when you get that first deal, put together a little business plan. Maybe it's only four or five pages, a little far, four or five page uh, PowerPoint presentation and uh, put a little plan together. And if you do that, you'll be surprised at investors' reactions where they go, wow, he's got a good deal. 
Uh, they put together a little business plan. You know, I want to commit money to this thing because a lot of people, you know, they always come and go, I want to do this, but would you invest in me? And I always say, you know, you have to put together a business plan that makes me excited. And then you'll have a dozen people that want to put money in. So I always tell people, learn a market first, stay small, put together a little bit business plan. And if you can do those three things or four things, you'll find your success at raising capital is kind of better than expected. So. Yeah. Um, you, you, you talked about one thing that this was, you know, find something in your, in your, yeah. uh, in your backyard. So a lot of times people are like, Hey, you know, I live in Los Angeles or San Francisco. Yeah. I can't afford things around here. So should sure. I turn around and look at something in Tulsa or yeah. Knoxville? Uh, yeah. Given the given the world is a little bit more kind of the world is flat these days, you can get to brokers faster, you can look sure. at research properties faster. Has your view of buying something in your backyard kind of changed over the years? Or do you think it's still uh, more powerful to be able to drive there and have kind of touch and feel the physical and know the market? Yeah, I think if you're buying income properties, it's uh, critical you stay within an hour drive of where you live, right? Especially starting out. Because it's easy to sit here in Newport Beach and go, wow, it's so cheap in Tulsa, I'm going to go there. But you got to fly there, you'll learn the market. If there's a problem, you can't get there quickly. And you're right, Newport Beach might be too expensive, but maybe it's Santa Ana, maybe it's Inland Empire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, stick to somewhere where it's, you know, within an hour drive. So if a toilet overflows or you got a problem or you got at least a unit or meet a contractor, you can drive there and get there. Uh, fairly quickly. And uh, I think that's more critical. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, within an hour drive, you can find a lot of reasonable priced areas, even in a San Francisco or a Newport Beach or, you know, La Jolla type location. So, yeah. Uh, the one thing you said that that actually caught my attention in, in those last three things, hey, like just put a plan together, right? Because a lot of times sure. people, like you said, the deal, all of this stuff is in our head. We're our yeah. excitements in our head. Uh, people don't know that 10, 15, 20 hours of research. They don't know any of that. All they are seeing yeah. their only exposure to that property is those is, is your energy and those four slides. Like that is their only reaction sure. to it. And yeah. you said something which was super powerful, which was before the days of PowerPoint, you said, Hey, we just put a spreadsheet together. And, yeah. um, uh, a lot of times, you know, the foundational business plan starts on, on the numbers sure. as well. When you look at a deal, just at a super high level, are you do you do your eyes instantly go to like one or two metrics that uh, that you like to see, or is it is it more on a is it based on the asset class? You know, that's a good question. And uh, you know, as as my company has evolved, you know, we've created these super complex spreadsheets. You know, there are dozens of pages and hundreds of lines and IRRs and you name it in, in these models. And, but at the end of the day, we go back to a very simple metric, which is gross rent multiplier. So if I look at the annual gross rents uh, times a multiplier, say it's 10, you know, that's the value of the property. And uh, I remember years back, you know, a long time ago, uh, Don Sterling, right? Probably know yeah. about Don Sterling, <laughs> big apartment owner. And his rule of thumb was it's a 10 GRM. So Whatever the annual rent is, I pay 10 times that, that's my price. And I'll close on Monday, right? <laughs> it was always a 10 GRM. The market's gotten more pricey today, obviously. But so in our, our shop, we look at that gross rent multiplier as a check because you can get lost in all the spreadsheets right. and analysis. But, you know, the lower the gross rent multiplier is usually the better the deal. And, uh, you know, every market, 
in the country has a range of gross rent multipliers. And if you can get something kind of at a lower gross rent multiplier, but you've got upside, yeah. that's usually a pretty good deal. So, yeah. and, um, uh, so, so Jerry, over the years, you, you've, you did this, you learned kind of the condo single family market, then you found this multifamily market or, or kind of multi-unit. And then you started buying these buildings, but all of them um, seem to have this underlying uh, uh, kind of foundation of housing as a whole. And sure. uh, I've heard, I, I remember I was, um, when you and I were together, we were doing this uh, backstage tour of Disney and you were telling me about this, uh, you know, sure. your thoughts around all, the study that you had done around millennials and how there was a shift where boomers are moving in, millennials are moving out and or they couldn't sure. afford it. And I'd love, I have two questions around that. How much time do you spend thinking through these macro trends? And is that is that something, because a lot of people are so deal centric and they're like, well, like you said, hey, who, sure. who's going to get the next deal from? Where can the next deal happen? I'm not getting enough deals. Yeah. And uh, I, this is like, I almost want to spend an hour talking about this, but you said, well, everyone wants to just deploy capital. They're like, they feel like if I'm not buying yeah. enough deals, I'm not doing the right thing. Sure. And you said, hey, yeah. Sharon, like there's a macro trend story here that we should all yeah. invest within. And so my question for you is, uh, a little bit of uh, guidance from you around where where are you seeing kind of housing trends as a whole based on demographics? Sure. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good question because we always debate, are we a bottom-up investor where we're looking at a great deal in a market or a top-down where you look at, hey, I want to be in a, a Dallas because it's got great job growth. And, um, and we've been more kind of bottom-up, which is hey, if we can get a great deal in a bad market, we'll do that, right? <laughs> and versus a, you know, I'm looking at a, a great market and hoping I make a buy and it works out well. And uh, so we've, uh, uh, that's how we looked at, you know, our deals because our view is it comes down to getting a great deal in a, a market, whether it's good or bad, is more meaningful. And, uh, you know, the best deals are, getting a great deal in a market that works out great. So you get kind of the <laughs> double benefits. So we, we look at both. And, uh, but our, our big thing is more of trying to find uh, distressed markets where they're out of favor. So, um, you know, right now the markets that are our favor are New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, <laughs> you know, Seattle. And, you know, they're very dense markets uh, because of COVID. A lot of people have left. They've had supply issues and the markets that are hot right now are, you know, the Phoenix, the Dallas, the Houston's, the Austin's, uh, the Florida markets, because they're low tax, pro-business growth and uh, more suburban style. And uh, but three or four years ago, that was the opposite, where people said, I don't want to be in suburban markets. I want to be in these urban infill markets because that's where the millennials moving to all the millennials they want to move to the urban core because of the lifestyle and work, live, play thing. And all of a sudden, a few years later, it completely changes. <laughs> and now everyone's focused on these suburban markets. And so all the capital is flooding toward the suburban markets. And the biggest distress right now is in these big urban uh, infill markets, combination of COVID, the recession, uh, oversupply. And uh, so we're, we, we're looking at all those markets going, when is the, the best time to jump in? And uh, so we're, we're looking at all the markets, trying to figure out, hey, has there been a market like Las Vegas that we went there about five, six years ago, Las Vegas crashed after the last run up. And we went from 
zero units owned to 10,000 units owned over a, uh, a couple year period. It worked out great. We bought a lot, did a value add, sold it. Uh, Las Vegas became hot. You know, COVID hit, <laughs> you know, the market's taking a hit. So now we're looking at Las Vegas again going, hey, maybe we should go into Las Vegas because, you know, this hit due to COVID and the tourism, you know, gaming casino shut down. Maybe it's a good time to buy there because it's got, you know, no state tax. It's pro business. It's low density. It's got all the factors we like, you know, um, post pandemic, other than it got hit hard because of this whole uh, shutdown. So, Jerry, how so how are you so fact fluent on so many markets? Uh, is it just over time where you just you, you are you figure out hey these are the these are the things that I watch these are the things that I learn these are the things that I read because I need to because sure. you need that because it seems to me like every time I talk to you viscerally just know and that's <laughs> probably a you know it's a layered effect right because you've probably seen hey um, ten years ago we invested in X market because of X Y sure. reason and now it's changed sure. and so you're able to do a relative understanding but how do you know so much. So how, how do you have so much fact fluency about so many different markets? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, we've been fortunate where, you know, we sold out of Phoenix in the last crash, uh, right before it crashed. You know, we got lucky in Las Vegas where we exited before this whole COVID meltdown happened. And I always think, was that like planning or we got lucky or, you know, whatever. And I think, you know, our what works for us best is, going to markets and buying when a lot of people don't feel like it's the right time to buy. And so you're being a little bit of a contrarian. So you're going to LA and, you know, um, uh, in the next year or two where most people want to be out of LA right now because of, you know, feeling like the rents are going down. Uh, we got supply issues and let's go to a Dallas or Austin. So, um, and so we try to find those contrarian plays where the capital is leaving those markets and our goal is, can we go find some great deals, buy them, you know, reposition them, and then three, four, five years from now, the capital says, no, I like LA, or I like New York, I like San Francisco, and then sell when the market's hot with a influx of capital because suddenly they've changed their, their thought process on that market. So, And, and how is it that, um, so you, I think uh, you've, you shared with me that over the years, your, your capital sources, both your own and um, you know, kind of the syndication model or the investors. And I know you've, you've done some institutional as well, which was, which helped in the growth a little bit, sure. but how do you convince a, uh, it, it, does it go back to, my question is, does it go back to the business plan of convincing capital that is supporting Bascom to say, sure. Hey, we believe that there is a contrarian approach here and here are the reasons why does it, does it still come back to the business plan? Exactly. So yeah, everybody still wants to look at the business plan and go, Hey, whether it's contrarian or down market, up market, can I invest in this deal and make money? And uh, what we found too is over time, you've got to kind of sometimes transition through different investors. So, you know, maybe there's a period of time where it's an Oak Tree or Carlisle or Morgan Stanley, and uh, they're targeting high teens returns and they'll do contrarian investments. And that works for a while. And then all of a sudden the returns diminish you know, capital finds that area of opportunity and you've got to find either a different market or a different capital source. So we've tried to, over the years, be very diversified on our capital sources and whether it's institutional, overseas, crowdsourcing, private funds, 
trying to find the right capital that fits the current environment because some of these groups are very active, but then they realize, hey, I can't get high teens IRRs on apartments today. I need to go buy in Europe, right? <laughs> and so the capital will flow and change depending on how the opportunity looks. And so we've learned, hey, you gotta be diversified. You've always gotta be finding new capital sources that you know, can be accommodating toward today's returns. And our, our biggest challenge today is, you know, we were always a high teens 20 IRR type uh, buyer. And uh, which means our investors would get a 15 to 17% net IRR on, on pro forma. And the challenge we have today is the returns today on pro forma are all low teens at best leveraged. So the whole universe of return expectations is dropped dramatically, which means, you know, we have to find investors that are okay with that low teens uh, return on a potential opportunity. And, and I think this is where you are sharing with me that you're like, hey, uh, is it because the asset class, especially multifamily, is yeah. it because the asset class has gotten um, kind of more Goldilocks press-like stuff over the last decade that more people are aware of it? They feel like they can have syndicatable access to it. And that's why you're seeing kind of more not as sophisticated, uh, yeah. you know, people get into it. Or what is the reason why this is, people are buying deals that don't seem like sure. a, uh, it, it was as good as it was, could be. Yeah, that's a good point. And apartments right now are super hot because, you know, hotels are crushed. They're empty. No one's traveling. Retail is going through their own little destruction and industrial is hot. So industrial post pandemic is probably worth more and apartments feel like it's the safe place to be. So everyone's sheltering at home in their apartment uh, you know, a lot of people, even though they might have lost their job, have unemployment benefits or whatever. So apartments, you know, other than a few markets, have held pretty steady uh, returns. So a lot of investors view, hey, I'd rather be in apartments because it's a safer bet than buying a shopping center or hotel or office building. And so there's been a bigger flood of capital to apartments because that perceived safety and also, interest rates have dropped, so you can borrow very cheaply today. Freddie and Fannie are still lending on apartments, so that market is still there. You know, if you're in office or retail or hotels, it's a very thin market for financing. But apartments, the government has said, I want Freddie and Fannie to keep lending. So there's a very active lending market for multifamily. And I think third is uh, multifamily is a product type that everyone understands, right? You can yeah. go buy a condo or duplex and rent it out and you're an apartment owner. So, so I think it's a market that people feel very simple and uh, feel safer about today. And the one thing I hear from a lot of investors is I'm terrified of hotels, terrified of shopping centers, scared about the future of office, but apartments, you know, people got to live somewhere. <laughs> they got a shelter at home and the population keeps growing. So apartments feel like it's a great place to put your money today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this this brings me to a, a planning question. When you and your partners are having a beer, right? How are you? Sure. That's the that's a, I'm always fascinated by that. Which is, it, how easy is it for you to think out and say, well, um, this is what we believe or we think the world's going to look like in say I'm going to make up a number ten years. So sure. there's almost a hypothesis for what ten years out looks like. And can you say, hey, sure. I think that X is going to change for Y reason, I think Y is going to say the same. Uh, how often are you 
thinking or hypothesizing about those conversations and 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 how do you think how, how do you think through that uh, construct if you will that that's a good question i think the the biggest question today that we debate almost daily is are these new low returns the new normal right right <laughs> or is that just a product of right now or the next year and then we're going to buy all these deals and then two years from now I'll look back and go oh my gosh we paid too much money for them uh so the are we in this new normal of low returns? You know, that debate is happening a lot. And, you know, I went to a, a YPO event and they asked the same question and they asked 40 executives of, you know, what are you doing when returns have dropped so much? And out of 40 people, you know, three or four said, I'm done. I'm retiring. The game is over. <laughs> and, you know, the other 35, 37 people said, well, I just have to adjust my investors' expectations to the new normal. So if gang at eight IRR is market, I'm gonna shoot for a nine IRR. So, uh, you know, but so the bulk of people said, I just have to outperform the new benchmark of returns, not keep trying to target these mid-teens, high-teens returns that I've enjoyed for 25, 30 years. So, cause maybe we are in this new normal of, you know, uh, deflationary or no very low returns for some period of time and uh, everyone's debating how long does that period of time go on and uh, I don't know if we have an answer for it so this brings me to um, uh, one of the early times I talked to you and you were saying hey every every person in you know every entrepreneur every person in finance is thinking about making any kind of investments you said should read value investing Ben the Ben Graham yeah. book right and exactly um, it's 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 not it's not like it's it's a pretty dry read (laughs) (laughs) but 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 uh the 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 central premise i mean i I, i've read it and and uh it's taken me a while because i read it through business school and it said hey just don't invest in anything that you don't you make all your money on the buy and that was the biggest my biggest lesson was all the money is on the buy it's not that i hope that i'll sell it for a lot it's that i i know that i bought it for the you know for a deal how is that is is that uh is bascom also centered around is that kind of your foundational thing of hey i'm gonna we're gonna buy right more than sell right or how do you think about that yeah i think it's a combination of things i think uh you know warren buffett's view is i'm not going to try to reposition a company or buy value add i just want to buy it cheap and buy a great company at a cheap price because over time it's going to outperform because I bought it below market. Uh, for Baskin Group, we look at two things. One is we want to buy it as cheap as possible going in. So, you know, can we get this property a big discount to what it's intrinsically worth? But second, for Baskin Group, we also pride ourselves on not only going to buy it cheap, but we're going to add value. We're going to renovate it, raise rents, lower expenses. So. We not only bought it cheap, but we've also created value through uh, enhancing the property, enhancing the income. And so we've done both. And what we've seen is the the best formula really is buying cheap, adding a lot of value, and you get lucky and the market gets hot. Rents go up, you know, higher than inflation. (laughs) And if you can do all three and get lucky with a hot market, you can do really good. But our view is if you can buy it cheap, add value, you can do really well. And if you can get the enhancement of a hot market, you can do better. So is there, um, given that you've seen so many buy quote, buy, buy, right. So many value adds and so many kind of exits, if you will, uh, is there a internal kind of Bascom playbook of, Hey, when we buy something, 
here are our 27 options of the things that we can do. And it, it would, is, does something like that exist based on your model or how, how do you, how do you know what you can do on a property? And is, is that kind of built with institutional knowledge over time? Uh, yeah, I think it's built a lot of knowledge, but second is, you know, we go out and we look at the rental comparables. And so we look at buildings that will look like our building kind of with an upgrade. Uh, and so look at these five day rent comps and, uh, and we'll look at the market rents and make adjustments. Uh, we'll look at the sales comparables and uh, look at all the sales comparables. And we'll look at both the, the rent study, the sales comparables and our financial analysis and, uh, and go, hey, this particular deal has a lot of upside to buying it, upgrading it and repositioning it. And, uh, and also, hey, if we sell this thing, are we gonna be able to sell it for a price that you know, should fall within the sales comparable? So we look at that as well. So. Yeah. Um, it, it, talking about you know, doing all this work, you have, you know, you, your team has grown. Uh, I remember you telling me the story of, hey, it was when it was just me and my partner, you know, I, I ran to Staples, I printed stuff yeah. out. And sure. I remember my first analyst, uh, who was like, oh, my Alice ran to Staples. That was amazing, <laughs> right? Sure. <laughs> uh, but but the one thing you 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 mentioned to me kind of stuck with me was um, how you make your employees partners. And yep. I thought that was a I I, I don't know. Um, I, I wish most firms did that. It's a bit, a lot of technology companies advise you know kind of do that where they at least have a piece sure. of the pie and they can stay in, uh, they're all kind of partners in, in the deal. I'd love for you to maybe just talk about one, how did the concept of uh, making employees partners come about? What was the philosophy around that? And then mechanically, how do you actually, whatever you're willing to share, how are you, how do you actually, how do they participate? Sure. I'd love to talk about that. So yeah, our, our goal has always been, you know, we want everybody to have um, not only a lot of responsibility, but a lot of authority. So, Every, people, every person on our team has the ability to, you know, if they want to go do something that, you know, fits our business plan, they have the authority to go do it and, you know, subject to certain checks and balances. But second, you know, if each uh, acquisition reposition works out great, you know, we want all the team members involved in it to participate in that upside. And, uh, and that way they all feel like they're owners. And so what we do is, you know, most of our profits from our company uh, return come from that carried interest or promote they call it and so you know we might put up 10 percent of capital but after a 10 percent preferred return might get 30 percent of the profit uh, if it works out well so that 20 percent or carried interest or promote uh, flows to bascom and then our goal is we want you know whether you're an asset manager uh, a renovation manager you're an acquisitions person we want everybody to be working on this hoping and believing that they're going to be part of that team that gets a piece of this upside if it works out great. And then they start thinking like an owner. So what we do is we say, Hey, we get this carried interest and let's say it's, you know, you know, $5 million on some $50 million asset. You know, we bought it, repositioned it, sold it, made a $5 million carried interest. And so what we'll say is 10% of that carried interest goes to our acquisitions team. So it's the, it's the acquisitions manager that found the deal, underwrote it, closed it, and uh, put together. And then the other 10% goes to the operational renovation team that um, you know, worked on the asset, oversaw the renovation, uh, managed the property manager, you know, lower expenses. 
And that way you not only have the acquisition people, but you have the operational renovation people on the same team, really working toward the same goal, which is how do we maximize that cured interest, which benefits the partners. Yeah. And uh, we, yeah. So, uh, and, and you also you also were sharing with me that not only do they get the benefit of working um, working on the deal, they know that they have a, a piece of that because they they're incentivized and they they now they feel like it's their deal, which is the which is the yeah. cool thing you can give them exactly. Uh, uh, but also at, at times where if if there is a Bascom investment vehicle, they can also participate in that deal if if based if based on uh, some opportunities. Is that right too? Exactly. So not only do they participate in the carried interest, uh, so if the deal works out well, they can get a piece of that too. But second, uh, all the employees can invest their own real capital into a uh, our deal on the sponsor co-invest side. So, you know, if it's a group like Carlisle and they say, I want you to put up 10% of the equity, you know, that 10%, we have all of our team members, employees in our company that go, Hey, I'll put up 100 grand, 50 grand, 10 grand, five grand, and even interns and analysts <laughs> chip in money. So sometimes they'll put up two grand or five grand, but you know that two thousand dollars from an analyst making you know fifty thousand a year—that's a meaningful part of his equity contribution. Yeah. And so even the younger people on the team have a vested interest in seeing this deal be successful. And what we've seen is people end up taking a lot more personal interest in a deal. <laughs> you know, they're knocking on my partner's door, asking about distributions. <laughs> they're wondering why it's not leased up like it should be. And so they become like partners, which, you know, that's the ultimate goal where that way, if uh, Dave or Derek and I go home at night and go to bed, there's somebody else worrying about how this asset is performing. Yeah. And, and I think the when I, when you were sharing this with me, the one thing that was going through my head was when someone understands uh, or when the entire company, every single person sure. understands almost every piece of how this works and both yeah. from, hey, this is how we buy, this is how we reposition, this is how we manage, and this is how sure. we are going to get paid at the end. Sure. I, for, for some reason, however small or big the company, I, most people come in and they say, well, this is my silo. I do marketing. I get my social media sure. posts out. I do this. As long as I do my job, fine. I'm yeah. fine. But this, sure. I think, forces people to have a very, uh, very clear understanding of how the business works. And, and that, sure. that's the coolest part to me, because now they all are speaking from the same, same vocabulary, if you will. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, we like that because, again, they're all on the same page. They have the same motivations. And, uh, you know, if Jerry's on vacation, uh, there's a team that's actively looking at this property because they've got a big vested interest in it. And second, our goal was, yeah, we want to make ourselves wealthy. That was kind of the original goal. But, yeah. you know, even the more meaningful goal was we wanted all of our employees and partners and team members. I wanted them to be millionaires, right? I want them to walk away and go, wow, this is a very lucrative, you know, company that worked out well for me. And uh, so we want to ensure that they, they did well too. Uh, but second, also, we've spawned off a lot of uh, operating partners from our company that, left our company, formed a new company, and, uh, and we've invested in that company. We became kind of co-owners or partners. And uh, in a lot of cases, they've gone, started a completely new company and have done really well. So it's been very satisfying to see younger people that started off as, at Bascom as an analyst, worked their way up, and now they're out 
building a high rise in downtown LA or buying a big portfolio. And, you know, that's very satisfying to all of us to see the success of the growth of the young people in our company too. Yeah. Um, so how does somebody, I, I mean, can you, can you think back to when you were doing everything, you were small sure. and you're like, if only I had an extra pair of hands to help sure. with this. And then uh, I think most entrepreneurs are like, well, I'll just do it. And I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for somebody when I make the money. Yeah. As opposed to paying for someone now so that I can maybe make more. How, how do you, how, how was the growth of Bascom that way where you said, how do we grow the people in the roles today? Or was that kind sure. of a, did you have to learn as you went along? Yeah, I think we kind of learned as we went along. So, um, you know, we first started, it was, you know, two guys in a little uh, 900 square foot office next to a dental office, right? <laughs> you know, that's where you got to start. <laughs> and it was cheap and we'd hear drilling and you could smell like that solution and get patients. But uh, uh, <laughs> so that was our first office, right? And then uh, our first employee, I, you know, Darren Olson, who now is building high rises and throughout Southern California, you know, came up from Wisconsin and, you know, we were shocked that, well, we added a, a third person, our productivity exploded. And because uh, we now we have someone to go to Staples or go buy paper, or fax things for us. And so we realized, uh, A, we have to find great people um, that can help us, but also, you know, give them the incentives to do well and make money and, and, uh, and, and see the growth as well. So. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, quick, a couple of quick questions um, before we wrap up. So how, let's talk about kind of your, on the, on the personal side, how do you stay, anything that you do, I, I know you love to work out, but how, I'm on the health side, maybe the wellness side, yeah. how do you stay sharp? Because I think the average entrepreneur right now is thinking, sure. hey, I, I have to, I have a short time, I have to make this, I have to hustle, maybe it's yeah. my side gig, and yeah. I will do this at the cost of uh, you know, I'll just stay up late or stay, stay late. I'll <laughs> sure. wake up early and work and I'll put, I'll trade my workout for work. And, and cause workaholism yeah. is a, is a, sure. is a noble addiction. Right. So exactly. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts? Kind of like, what's your advice to them when uh, that, that, you know, you wish you had gotten early on? Uh, yeah. Good question. I think, uh, you know, I was at a, a panel once and they asked all these super rich guys, like, you know, can you have a work-life balance? Right. And these were all billionaires in LA that had, you know, either owned office or retail or apartments. And they said, you know, you're not going to become a billionaire having a perfect work-life balance. There's going to be sacrifices, right? <laughs> maybe it's your health, maybe it's your family. You're going to have to make some sacrifices to, to work as hard as we do and have the success. Um, but, you know, saying all that, I think it's critical, like, as you talked about, you got to work out, you got to stay in shape because sometimes you work out or you work too much and all of a sudden you find yourself hundred pounds overweight, having health issues and heart attack. And, you know, if you can't enjoy your money and enjoy your company, that's not worth, worth doing. So I think it's, you've always got to stay somewhat grounded and, and try to work out every day, not only for stress, but to, to stay in shape. And uh, which I've always done that. I've been a workout junkie. I think maybe it's stress or maybe it's whatever to, to stay in shape. Uh, and then second, you need, you know, family support. So, you know, having a great wife to help you and support you is fantastic and kids to support you. And, and third, I think, which is one area that I wish I had done a better job when I was younger was 
having mentors. You know, when I first started, I didn't really have any. I just kind of did it, learned the hard way. And I've been a mentor for, you know, a couple of hundred younger people in the industry. And as I've done, I look back, I'm like, wow, I, I should have done that. I should have, when I was younger, you know, a 25-year-old out of college, you know, called someone senior and asked for advice or help or grab a lunch or a coffee. And you'll find if you're a younger person looking for a mentor, a lot of people are willing to help you because it reminds them of what they were like 30 or 40 years ago, right? This young person with a lot of enthusiasm, excitement. And then I think finally, the one thing that we've, uh, it's worked out well for Bascom is we've got an active internship program. We've had over 200 some interns over the years. And uh, these young people have given me a lot of motivation because young people come in our company, yeah, they're an intern, don't have a lot of work experience, but they look at things from a totally fresh perspective. You know, once you get older, you start being kind of stuck in your ways. And all these young people have come up with <laughs> great ideas for improving our company or improving a model or finding some new way to do it because we didn't, didn't see it, right? And so, uh, you know, this internship program, it's been great. And it's given me a lot of energy and excitement because I see, hey, that was me 20 years ago or 25 years ago, this young person fresh out of school, a lot of excitement. So it kind of fires me up to work with people like that and, and see their growth and success. And, and it's helped us a lot too. And a lot of those same interns have left, formed companies that we're partners in and have been very successful, or they've been our lender or equity partner or asset manager. Um, so it's been a, been a great, you know, even though people think, oh, God, having interns is a lot of work. I'm like, no, it's been a, a great, one of our best investments ever for our company. So, um, Jerry, I could, I could talk to you forever about this stuff because it's <laughs> uh, one, uh, maybe we'll, we'll kind of look back and look forward here. Is there a way, it's maybe hard to do, but if sure. you, knowing what you know now, right? Um, if yep. you had to start, if you had to start over today and if you'd be like, sure. hey, I, 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 I have, it's exact. It's the same Jerry from uh, 1994, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I have all the knowledge. How and you had to, you know, kind of you had to build the the Bascom Empire again. Would you start yeah. differently? Would you do what would be one or two things that you would kind of start off with? Either do differently or do the same. Um, good question. I think you know one thing we did right was we put a business plan together, and which I'd say 90% people don't do right. They talk about the idea. They'll go talk to an investor. Will you give me money? but they never sit down and spend the time to put together a business plan. And thankfully my partner, Dave Kim forced the issue, did it, which was probably a big trigger for our success. So I think it's, you know, um, uh, I'm glad we did that. And I'm not sure if it was up to me, I would have done that. <laughs> I thought I would have fallen the trap of everybody else of talking about it. And then I had nothing in writing. And I, I think the other thing I wish I would have done better was, you know, built up a bigger network of, mentors that can help me. So, you know, people that were at bigger companies and more experienced, you know, reached out to them and said, Hey, I'm, you know, 25 year old Jerry, I want to do this thing. Could I grab coffee with you or do a quick lunch and just kind of pick your brain, get your ideas on what do you think of this business plan? And so I would have been, done a better job of finding uh, mentors. Uh, and third, I think the lesson we learned is I would have ramped up faster. You know, we first started, we're super cautious. We had some kind of, you know, venture capital investment and we were so terrified of spending it too fast that 
you know, this was opposite of the burn rate dilemma later on, you know, we were, so we got the cheapest office, the cheapest place and, you know, didn't hire anybody. We, we were very low budget and, uh, you know, it worked out well, but, um, I think I would have probably hired a few people faster and tried to ramp up quicker if I, if it was working. So, so good. Um, uh, Jerry, if, if, how can people find more about you? So if so folks want to know more, then go to baskingroup.com. Um, yep. if, if, uh, if folks want to, where is the best place at wake they can find uh, more about you and what Baskin is doing outside of the website or is that? Sure. I think you can just, uh, you know, Google us, <laughs> you know, there's press releases, there's articles in trade magazines that talk about our business plan. But second, you know, feel free to call me or email me. It's on the website. I'm always available to, to grab lunch with someone or grab a coffee or a drink. And, you know, I, I enjoy it maybe as much as they do, but, uh, <laughs> and so uh, things like that are always valuable because I, I do a lot of that probably a couple times a month, uh, you know, a random person reaches out and they say, I'm a, grad student at USC or an undergrad at UCLA and love to kind of grab lunch or a coffee with you and just talk about my career. And I love doing that because those are all things that I wish I had done when I was younger. I didn't do or didn't know how to do it. And, uh, and I, I look at those people that are doing that and those people are reaching out and looking for mentors and asking questions. They end up being more successful because they've got that passion. They're networking, they're connecting with more senior people. So you know, that little skill of reaching out, contacting people to, to chat with them is usually an indicator of someone that's going to be successful in their real estate career. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Jerry, ever since the first time I got to hang out with you, you every every single time you, you're always just the, uh, a breath of fresh air. You're, you're so straight <laughs> up and straight and honest. And uh, sure. I love hanging out with you. And uh, thank you for spending, sure. spending time and sharing and dropping some great yeah. nuggets with us. Really appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you, Sharon. This sounds like a, a pretty cool podcast. And I'm going to check out some of your other ones. <laughs> I appreciate it. Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com. <laughs>